0: Today, how green was my Viali? Yes, it's part two of our Luca special. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, where we cover the bits from Samp to European Champ, go check that out. Today, part two, taking Luca Viali to the bridge and beyond. Lasso! Hello, Gab. Hello. And hello again, James Horncastle. Hi, James. So where were we? As Gianluca Vialli and Juventus are European champions of 1996.
1: Gianluca Vialli hoisting the Champions League trophy aloft. In 1996? In Rome. As Juventus player, the last Juventus player to do that, James. And then bidding farewell
2: fairly.
0: Right. Shortly afterwards. That's right. And heading off to Northern Climbs. Rangers. Cabrilli.
2: Almost. Almost, no. But no, instead it was. Uh, uh, West London and Chelsea right and we should know that you know we often sort of forget this when we look at players careers and stuff like this but this was only made possible because the previous winter because a player named Jean-Marc Gosman got a landmark ruling from a European court and now we take this all for granted that players freedom of movement freedom of movement <laughs> well two things one obviously players now become free agents which means that they can move without a fee which means that then they can earn more money Um, but also it removed all restrictions on foreigners within the European union. And it's really tough for you young uns to realize what it was like when you only had three foreigners, because part of the reason the best teams are so much better than everybody else today was that having three foreigners in your team almost guaranteed parity if you were a top league, right? Like if you were, you know, in, in its heyday Juventus or, or Milan. You to play three foreigners at the time. So because the other dudes didn't want to get stuck on the bench, they would trickle down to Fiorentina and then the, they would displace guys who would then go and play for Vicenza and Cagliari and teams like this. Um, and all of that happened the year that Viali moved. And part of the reason it's also very relevant, which we'll get to is this whole idea of foreigners and cosmopolitan Chelsea in West London, blah, blah, blah. Chelsea became the first team in the premier league to play 11 foreigners. All of that was made possible by what happened in 1996 when we say it was seismic it really was seismic
0: absolutely so he makes the decision to leave Juventus and go to West London which was his priority it almost didn't happen because Glenn Hoddle when Chelsea manager didn't fancy him but then when Ruud Hullett took over Ruud very much did however it didn't take long before Ruud didn't fancy him quite as much and Gianluca was sat on the bench a great deal
2: yeah I mean, he came over with with a ton of hype, a ton of enthusiasm along with uh, a fellow we all know Swiss midfielder named Roberto di matteo and then later in October, Zola came as as well. But it took Luca a while to adapt to to the Premier League. I think Hollet, who shall we say wasn't lacking confidence in his own managerial abilities if, if that's fair to say. You know, started out with a sort of, you know, Viali-Mark Hughes partnership up front and then Zola rocks he up. You never
1: and, played under kind of what you would typecast as a quote-unquote English manager, you know, in terms of, you know, let's go 4-4-2, let's go long, let's play kick and rush.
2: Yeah, it wasn't quite clear what kind of a manager I think <laughs> I think Rude was. Um
1: no, but I mentioned that guy because obviously he then essentially becomes the player manager later on. Yeah. I mean, you don't
0: what nobody was expecting. Yeah, and I think he wasn't expecting either. He talks about being given three days by the club and being effectively being told on a Thursday, you're starting on Monday as the manager, which is a huge thing to suddenly assimilate and prepare for.
2: Yeah, especially coming from the culture of Italy, right? The culture of il mister, where, you know, you have to go with this expression initially in Italy called fare le ossa, you know, make your bones. This idea that, and, and there are, I mean, not these days there are some exceptions or well, Luca's pal, Roberto Mancini being one of them, but the vast majority of managers, even if they were great players, have to start in the lower leagues and work their way up. And now all of a sudden, Luca, who's still playing, (laughs) you know, all of a sudden he becomes player manager. Um, His relationship with, with obviously soured as well. They won the FA Cup in the first season, 96, 97, and he played all of two minutes in the final, which I think he came on in, in minute 89 and you know, you can either view that as like Hullet saying, yes, yeah, Luka, you can be part of our of 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 our triumph. Right. Sorry. Um, <laughs> or you can say like, oh, let me humiliate you a little bit more by reminding everybody that you're on the bench. Ha, ha, ha. And you can come on now that, you know, we've already won the game. He didn't take that, I think, very well. Um, what
1: is it about Hullet and strikers? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so yeah, so he, he had to take this over. And I remember uh, the cuddly Fabio Capello at the time saying, Ooh, it's like handing a teenager the keys to a Ferrari, you know, vis-a-vis Luca getting the job. Uh, The idea being that he couldn't possibly be any good because he was still a player and he had no experience and he didn't make his bones in the lower division.
0: Right. When you look at the things that they won. Because Capello did that as well, famously.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know what? (laughs) This is one of the ironies. And I, I raised this point with him. And obviously when you raise it with him, how does he react? He starts raising his voice and talking over you, right? So you can't actually articulate anything and you have to decide whether no, you no. want to finish.
0: So so you and Capello in a raising voice, <laughs> raising voice off.
2: <laughs> Basically. But Capello would have pointed out that, of course, you know, he took over that brief period with Niels Liedholm. And then he studied with the whole, whatever the hell he called, Berlusconi called it when Berlusconi bought like the rugby team and the the baseball team and whatever the hell, the hockey team and he studied everything and that in reality he was far more prepared uh, than anybody else who would ever come after him. And also Capello would point out that, you know, he's different from others.
0: Right. But the results, (laughs) the results for Gianluca were pretty good though for him as a player manager.
2: In terms of trophies won, he is the most successful manager in the history of Chelsea pre-Roman Abramovich having won if you want to extend this out to sort of Mourinho style or Italian style, to count the Supercoppa, mm-hmm. right? Because, of course, he won uh, he won a charity shield. He won a League Cup. Mm-hmm. He won a Cup Winners' Cup. Mm-hmm. He won a European Super Cup. Mm-hmm. FA Cup in 2000? Oh, yeah, and he won the FA Cup again yeah. in, in 2000, yeah. He
0: so- gave them their history. <laughs> Very nice. But, okay, so you say if you judge by the trophies, you're suggesting that in actual fact he wasn't that good as a player manager?
2: No, I think... I, I, mean, I mean, I'm going to be biased here. What am I going to say? He's bad. Like, right. no, I, I, I think he was good. Obviously it was, it was a particular time and a particular team, right? So you had a situation where Ken Bates who, who owned Chelsea at the time and who was known to take some pretty large gambles, you know, obviously they they gambled on redeveloping the stadium and redoing the project, the, the Chelsea village project and. You know, they had built up a ton of debt as we then know, and they spent a lot of money and a lot of money on wages and brought in a ton of players. Um, he really exploited, you know, and these things, they don't happen by accident, right? We're talking about the late nineties, right? The premier league is booming. A lot of top players elsewhere are looking at this and say, Hey, you know what players in, 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 Spain, in Spain and Italy in particular saying, Hey, you know what, this is a pretty good place to go because We make a ton of money, we get to live in London, where the great thing about that is, you know, we don't get stopped and harassed on the street because there's somebody more famous than us around the corner. The media actually, yeah, they're a bit childish and stuff, but they don't show up to every single training session. Uh, They're a lot less intrusive. There is, and when I my points out to English people, they kind of often freak out, what are you talking about? But it's true. There's a lot less pressure. Here in England, for all the talk and Sam Allardyce crying about how a manager is going to drop dead one day from the insane pressure, it really isn't. You don't have ultras showing up outside your door with, 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 with like villagers with pitchforks and torches, you know? Yeah, you can get sacked, but then guess what? When you get sacked, you get compensation. You don't go on the, the, the Cellino plan where, you know, he's, or the uh, Zamparini plan where he's, you know, he's got like five different managers under contract. You don't have uh, a club president coming in and telling you who to play and how to play and whatever. So, yeah, it was extremely appealing. And, you know, they leveraged this to bring in a whole bunch of players uh, from Marcel de Desailly to, to Super Dan Petrescu to Baba Yaro To the, the list goes on and on.
0: Okay, so after that, well, then then Chelsea decide that they need to make a change. And they fire Gianluca, uh, which he was kind of upset about. No, he was expecting to be called in for a, to discuss a new contract. And instead, Ken Bates said... We're going to make a change.
2: Yeah. I think it was eight games into the season, something like that. I think it was after a draw against St. Gallen, maybe it could all be wrong. Um, but he was not expecting it and he took it very, very hard. Um, because he had really bought into Chelsea and he bought into London and he really thought that, you know, this is it. You know, he had found in some ways, I mean, I don't want to make him bad. We'll make comparison a similar vibe to what he thought, what he had in Genoa at audio, you know, this was home. He was starting to settle down and, you know, and eventually of course he'd, he'd get married and stuff. So he was a Chelsea fan, you know, this was, this was big, this was, you know, he'd kind of found his, found his center. If, uh, uh, if you will, cause you know, that was always a thing with, between Mancini and Vialli that the dichotomy Mancini ended up marrying relatively early and luca ended up you know being bachelor man around town for a long time and then finally he finds his home and it's still his home now but he thought that he would be part of chelsea and for a long time he didn't go to chelsea after that because i, I think it did hurt him in the meantime he'd hung up his boots his
0: final game coming in may 1999 and a 2-1 victory against derby county in which luca scored his last goal as a professional, and a lovely volley it was too. But after Chelsea, he then had another stab at managing.
2: He, uh, he went to Watford where, interestingly, he brought in a guy, and I think this is, this is kind of like a very Luca move. He brought in a guy who was Italian, who he'd never played with, mean maybe once or twice with a national team, only kind of knew at a distance, but really, really respected. And that guy was, was Filippo Galli, who was, I mean, he must have been in what? a million years old when he came over. <laughs> but, He's
0: always looked the same age.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he did this thing which...
0: The, uh, sorry, Filippo Galli, who was part of the great Milan side.
2: He was the original. You know, when we think of the legendary Milan back four, the, you know, Tassotti and, and Maldini your full backs, Baresi and Costa Curta in the middle. Before Costa Curta, there was, who's the youngest of the lot, or maybe Maldini was, we're, you know, we're about the same, but... There was Filippo Galli, Filippo Galli was a guy who was there and he was seen as a leader and he was seen as the guy who was sort of the ultimate defender, especially mentally. So he brought him in. And in fact, one of the interesting things, is you know, how this season when I got a lot of stick for having, you know, the players vote for the captaincy and, and whatever. He had the players vote for the Watford captain and they all voted and they voted for Filippo Galli who, you know, was new, could hardly speak English, had just kind of landed there. But that that was... His media aura. Yeah, and those were some of the things that, that he was hoping to, to bring to the table.
0: Well, he had one year at Watford with Ray Wilkins as his assistant manager, after which he's once again let go, and I think it's fair to say Gabby pretty much gives up on management uh, and uh, decides to try his his hand at various other things. A variety of TV shows... Uh, writing a book with a journalist whose name escapes me at present and generally enjoying himself in Chelsea. I remember bumping into him at shit. The camera was the Odeon or whatever, going in to see Despicable Me. And uh, Luca was there with family and we had a little chat,
2: you know. Yeah, I think... Nice. I mean, <laughs> so timeline-wise... Good film. I don't think he did immediately give up on management because he, if you remember, he went and he did the... Uh, he did a course in Coverciano to get his pro license, mm. and that was, I want to say, two years after after Watford, because the genesis for the book that he wrote with a very talented Italian journalist named uh, Gabriele Marcotti, uh, who is me, uh, w- was actually the thesis that he wrote okay. at, at yeah. Coverciano and the idea of the of the differences and and, and stuff like that.
1: I was going to say, if you wrote the thesis together...
2: I, I didn't, write. No, no.
1: That'd I, be great, because you'd have your pro license yeah, as well. I
2: would have yeah. one too, yeah, yeah. No, but I didn't. I didn't. I got to read his thesis afterwards right. and say, hey, can we turn this into a book? And I said, yeah, if we go and we talk to like 20 other people, um, which we did, of course.
0: Very nice. So then he became a very successful pundit with Sky Italia.
2: More than that. So what happened was Italy had two competing satellite platforms, which were uh, uh, stream mm. and uh, TelePiu, si. so they merged and were taken over by Sky. And Sky Italia was formed. And Sky Italia decided to to revamp the way they the, the way they covered football and make it sort of supposedly less shouty, more thoughtful. And I think I don't know if you agree, James. I mean, you watch a lot. Of, I think it still is today compared to the standard of. Italian football coverage, right?
1: Oh yeah, I mean I think a lot of people outside of Italy when they think of the coverage, they think of those snippets that they see on social media of people shouting at each other, Tiziana Crudelli with his hand in his hair or crying and that sort of thing and instead it's the analysis is excellent on Sky it's, Italia, not just of Italian football but Champions League, Premier League, it's very good.
2: it, it just it's just a lot more a, a lot more measured and they chose Luca not just as a pundit but as sort of the face of Sky Italia. He headed up all their campaigns. He helped shape, uh, their coverage. One of the things driving them. And, you know, I, I remember spending an evening with, uh, with Luca and, um, and Massimo Mauro, his, uh, his mate with whom incidentally he has, uh, uh, a, a foundation and the proceeds of the book, the Italian job went to that foundation. Uh, and they were talking about how, you know what, this is key because we can clean up Italian football, we can shape Italian football as a whole, because we now control the money. You know, we, as in Sky Italia, Italian football was so dependent on TV money that, you know, we can, we can demand rules. We can get clubs. We can, we saw with Calciopoli how well that went, but (laughs) you know, but, but, but there really was this kind of belief that they were doing things differently. Um, Luca, who's way into the television, he, he wanted to be sort of like a Gary Lineker type figure. Only, of course, less political. Uh, he, would, he would stay in his lane and stick to sports, unlike Gary. Um,
1: I mean, to be fair, Italy at that time wasn't going through a Brexit, I suppose.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, they weren't seizing back control. But um, he really bought into it, and, and it, became, it became very, very important to him.
3: there football fan my name's lindsey hooper and i'm here to tell you about another podcast that just might catch your interest it's called the offside rule wsl edition and every week it's me and kate borsay talking to a load of former and current footballers plus those in the know talk about what's going on in the world of women's football we have the likes of manchester city manager nick cushing the arsenal the man united the chelsea games that Ultimately, we'll decide whether you win trophies in the cup competitions or the league. Arsenal's Leah Williamson. I'm a defender. Scoring, scoring is just a nice little bonus. And we've had a very important discussion on maple syrup. Because it seems bizarre that a sugary syrup is good, but I'm totally willing to buy into it. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but tell yeah, me no what. Right. I think in your in, moderate, you should decide it, nice. So if you love your football and want something a little different, then give us a try. It's the Offside Rule WSL edition available right now wherever you're listening to this podcast. The Offside Rule WSL edition because women's football is for life, not just for every World Cup.
0: You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. In 2016, the outlook... For before, Luca became suddenly much more complicated when he revealed that he had uh, pancreatic cancer. And the next few years were spent battling that, but not without other projects as well. Uh, curiously, in the middle of all of this, he found time to not only write a book called Goals, uh, and which is all about advice for how to deal with life's many challenges. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, so he, he wrote this book, um, which may not be coming out uh in english as well at some point in the near future where i mean and i think the book tells a lot of sort of his coping mechanism it's you know it's called 90 stories plus one and the one is is his stories and it's it's basically it's, it's 90 stories from sport that are are inspirational um and each one is accompanied by by a mantra you know it might not be what you expect for luca to suddenly get new agey and you know and and into mantras but the mantras were very helpful uh to him and he published this book which became which was very very successful in italy and um and it's something that he put a lot of himself into which i think also you know helped in what he calls he doesn't call it a battle he calls it a journey right you know in in dealing with uh with his illness
0: and it's a journey that's ongoing amongst that he's also fronted up a consortium which planned to take over at Sampdoria, which which had seemed just last summer, summer of 2019, was actually about to take over at Sampdoria, but they've now given up on that chase. Is that right, James? Yeah, I think the deadline passed and it's, it's finished kaput it's, now. Yeah, I, I don't...
2: I mean, I don't think it ever quite goes away, if you know the the very cuddly and lovable uh, Mr. Ferreira, who owns, uh, who owns Sampdoria... They could also just kind of sit back and, you know, wait for him to get the prison or the club to get relegated and then buy it a lot cheaper. I think, mm. I think the intent is there. I think he was part of the project as sort of like the face of the project. And obviously he would have taken an active role, mm, but but it's not something that you know he you know was his life's ambition, especially no, but at the he's,
0: time. He's talked of in the past feeling himself potentially is more suited to a director's role, to running a club than being a manager. And, and certainly, the, the notion of him coming back to Sampdoria, the club where I think more than any other he'd invested himself to try and bring them some of that former glories. Particularly if he could attract, say, his, his old buddy Roberto Mancini, his manager. how, how romantic would that be?
2: It would be romantic, but you know what? The romantic love affair between the two has already been rekindled, well, as true. you know. That's true. At national team lover.
0: Right, November 2019, and Italy's heart is collectively warmed by news of the touching reunion at the Azzurri. Alongside Italian manager Roberto Mancini, Luca Vialli joined the Azzurri staff as Capo Delegazione, team manager Gigi Rivas' old job. Jan, look at gli in fine voice uh, with his rendition of La Canzone del Sole by Lucio Battisti. Uh, So it's wonderful to see him back there, and it's wonderful to see him looking so hearty, and really enjoying and filled with enthusiasm by the looks of it for this new role. Uh, I think one of the reasons it's so nice is that previously the the national team had been one of the big regrets of his career.
1: Yeah, and I think um, if you look at Italia 90 in particular, he went into that tournament supposed to be the the go-to striker for the team loses his place. And it's not just his story, which ends up being tied with what Samp did the following year. There's a lot of players from that Samp team, bit it Mancini, I don't think he ever got on in Italian 90, no. did he? Viecawad, um as well, who would channel the disappointment of, for them, not necessarily being, not winning that tournament, but for not being protagonists in it. They would channel it into that Scudetto win with, with Sampdoria the following year.
2: I think what was difficult for him in that tournament was, as James said, it was all, it was all kind of geared towards him to be the star of the tournament. And then the comes out of nowhere. I think in the, in, you know, in the first game, I don't know if, if he got, sub. he started up front with Andrea Carnevale. I don't know if he got sub. I don't remember if he got substituted or Carnevale got substituted, but obviously Ski scored and. It was always kind of this sense of sort of in the next game, you've got Baggio and Skilacci the front two, the, the the banda basotti, you know, popular sentiment wanting them, yeah. and you've got Adelio Vicini, who of course was his manager with the under twenty ones, sentimentally wanting Luca. Um, it's funny, sorry, I don't even like talking about this because I hate the way it ended. But in the uh, in the semifinal, obviously against Argentina, it's Luca who starts, and it's Luca who plays a pretty big part in what should have been the winning goal, but for Kanija heading the ball for the first time in his entire career and Walter Zenga getting, getting stuck in no man's land and whatever else. And Roberto Baggio hitting the crossbar and all this stuff. But so, so that story, what, what struck me about that World Cup, especially vis-a-vis Luca, was that that could have had a different ending too. You know, mm-hmm. even with all the difficulty, there was still a sense throughout the tournament. I mean, I didn't know the guy at the time, right? There was still a sense that he could have made it his own at the end. But obviously, you know...
0: The- it didn't work out. And it didn't work out with Vicini's replacement as Italy manager, Arrigo Sacchi, who... can't imagine why. Well, one of the reasons, I think, is it fair to say that one of the reasons that because uh, Luca made the move to Juventus and wasn't really shining there was having some trouble adapting, was even being tried out by Trapetonian midfield roles that Sacchi felt empowered to kind of make him less of a priority with the national team and he played his last game under Saki in December 92 when the Azuri... Do you remember this squeak past Malta? And I think Saki afterwards pretty much blamed Viali for the, the, the lack of... The... Well, he scored in that game. Did he? Yeah. Mm. But Viali wasn't the only one
1: to not see eye to eye with Saki. I mean, we talked about his gemello, Mancini mm. as well, whose international career would not last much longer um, than his. Um yeah, Zola as well. Even though Zola would go to major tournaments with Sacchi. Um, there was always this sense that if you go to, if you go play outside of Italy, ultimately you're, you're out of sight and out of mind. Um, and yeah, I think that was certainly the case with with Zola. But yeah, I mean, for Luca, aside from that, was it Euro '88?
0: Yeah, '88 when it was him and Mancini with uh, Giannini behind, which is mm.
2: Principe. Yeah. And on Again,
0: the straight import from the under-21s oh. under Vicini and uh, got all the way to the semifinals in Russia. But yeah, everything set up for the, the World Cup at home in, in 1990 it didn't work out. And uh, so bad was the ill feeling between Viali and Arrigo Sacchi that when Sacchi led the Azzurri to the final of USA 94 against Brazil, as Luca commented at the time and then retracted, but I think now is kind of okay with admitting he actually supported Brazil in the final.
2: There's a there's a wonderful Italian term which I am sure we've mentioned before, but I always find it hard to to explain or translate as is a term uh gufare, uh, right?
0: <laughs> you owl someone. Yeah. That's so bizarre. How did to owl become a verb and such a but you're right, it's one of the most kind of relevant like, expressions in football.
2: Yeah, which it's a bit like Schadenfreude, but it's normally or, or in this case...
0: is after the event. This is when you're actively, through your own psychic energy, yeah, trying to right. bring about a bad result for somebody you don't like.
2: Yeah. To and And I think, you know, Nuka's very open about this, but I think that's how he felt when uh, Claudio Ranieri took over at Chelsea. And and I think that's how he felt with, uh, um, with, with, with the national team. Right. You know, that national team too, because... Remember the '94 World Cup? That whole World Cup was 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 a bit of a zoo, and Saki constantly changing the 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 changing the formation and the lineup, and and shouting at people, and you know, questo è matto. Exactly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, obviously he retracted it, but you know, I think it's a very human feeling.
0: Well, yeah, it goes way. I mean, it transcends borders. I think that any football fan will know that feeling of uh, to guffare, somebody. Yeah. You know, while watching a game.
2: I mean. I think there's probably. I mean, I remember Barry Glendening telling me that he was he was busy, gufari you when when you <laughs> left.
0: That's right. So, um, how, do, how do you say gufari in uh, in English? How would you how would you translate that? But culturally speaking, it, what basis is there for the notion? I'm that guessing owls maybe the like owl.
2: To, I don't know. I, I'm do going like all things has to do with superstition and some sort of it's southern some tradition kind of mythology of, of mm. the owl appearing and you know. But it's also creepy though to, how, do you know bring how, bad luck mm,
0: to jinx someone?
2: You know how owls like their head sort of swivels yeah, 360 degrees.
0: That is creepy. You're right. That is creepy. anyway. I mean, we've I mean, gone 360 degrees through the career of Gianluca Vialli. Well, at least the chapters so far, because there's much more to come. We've gone over so many memories. What what would be your favourite Vialli memory? Would it be one of that incredible season when he was always doing overhead kicks?
2: Some game where you were short and I was sure Napoli were gonna beat them. I remember where I was when For Sam. What well, yeah. I mean there was a season they won the title. They remember it was I was at university and getting up early and watching this on Rai Italia and like it was a volley. Again, I can't remember if he scored or if Mancini scored, but he was I mean he was obviously involved in it and I remember the embrace afterwards. You know what I'm talking about? It's Outside the of the foot and it comes off the post.
1: Inside of the post and goes in. Yes. Yes. It's Mancini. Mancini scores that goal.
2: Lucas next to him, in, in, and yeah. in the celebration. And I mean, obviously, I've got a lot, a lot of memories, but, but that is something that, that, to me, really, really sticks out.
1: I mean, in terms of goals, I mean, the one he scores for Juventus against Cremonese, his old side, where I suppose, in terms of distance from goal, it's a bit Trevor Sinclair for QPR, <laughs> except he's got a defender touch tight at his right. back, and he manages to still coordinate himself and get the power to flip it over him and get yeah. the height and the dip to. To put it, I think it went through the goalkeeper's kind of throat. Really, it was. Yeah, uh, it
0: was, I think it hits the hits the bar on on that one. It's about everything that season was extraordinary. How he just every week he's pulled off another remarkable overhead kick.
2: I didn't count that one as one of my favorite memories because obviously scored it for Juventus. But um, <laughs> I, I also what I remember too was how he 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 was one of those strikers who just really left everything um, on the pitch. But also what I loved about this and. When he got older, especially after he came to Chelsea, he's not a small man, but you know he's not six foot five. So he's up against taller defenders. And he started doing this thing, which I later asked him about whether he's doing this intentionally. When there'd be an aerial duel, the ball would come in. It looked like he was mistiming his jump by sort of jumping a split second after the other guy. So the other guy would win the header, but if it worked and didn't always work, you know the guy would head it, the opposite direction and then Luca would come up and intercept it. If if, if you see what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I just loved how like, you know, he's always thinking about how can I get these little edges, these, these little advantages in the game. And the other thing is, this is a center forward who, you know, scored a lot of goals, not 500 or 700, but, but who equally was fundamentally so unselfish and, and team oriented. And that's not something that, that you get a lot of times, you know, especially Especially even in that generation, even even today, you know, people who say, yeah, scoring goals is my job, but there's all this other stuff that I need to do and that I can do and is often more important for my team.
0: One other goal I wanted to throw in, the one full Sampdoria, the year after the uh, Scudetto, in an extremely rainy and a waterlogged pitch down at Abari. Do you remember when he basically goes sliding towards goal and heads the ball in while on the turf? Total commitment. <laughs> James, I mean, you must have done many a skit with Gianluca We did huh? do lots of skits, actually. And, and uh, you know, when you were saying about him as a thinker, that was one one aspect of uh, Gianluca Vialli beyond the goals. And the fact that he was a big name was the fact that interviews with him were always invariably fascinating in that he would, he would always come up with something fresh on any question, no matter how banal the, the question he would he would have a a, an unusual way of thinking about it and also would pull on comedy blonde wigs or something similar for a amusing intro at the start Um, which was nice and it was a great shame when he left to go to chelsea from from our point of view but but there you go what an extraordinary time he's had so far looking forward to seeing what is up next gab do you want to play us out with another cremona native mina and one of her more special songs for you
2: yeah, the song is uh, is parole, which means words. And Mina, of course, is you know if Luca is the second, third most famous person from uh, Cremona uh-huh. alongside Stradivari, oh, yeah. who made the violins, mm-hmm. Mina is unquestionably number one.
0: All right then. Until next time, listener. This has been Gab Marcotti, James Horncastle, and me, James Richardson, with Golazo. We'll see you soon.
3: Una
1: You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddyneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Tu sei il mio